Welcome to another edition of Missionary Minds, and we have a very special guest with us today, Dave Smith, normal name, unusual guy. That's a great combo. And he is the currently the missionary director of Open Door Baptist Mission, and he has a long history in missions. So here's my first question, although I'm going to ask it to you, Dave, but I'm actually going to get the answer at the end because I'm going to give you a little time to think about it. But my question to you off the bat is, Mount Rushmore, who is going to be your Mount Rushmore of great missionaries, if you could choose? For those who don't know U.S. history, there are four heads on Mount Rushmore. So I'd like to know from you, who would you put on your Mount Rushmore of great missionaries? But we'll save the answer till the end. What we're going to start out with is the story of Dave Smith, missionary, Christian, husband, father, and director of Open Door Baptist Mission. Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Paul. It's it's an honor and a blessing. It's great to be with you again. All right, so you grew up on the mission field. You suffered on the mission field, and then you returned to the mission field. And as Trinitarians, those are going to be my three points here this morning. And I'm just going to go one by one and just kind of unpack those for our audience. Talk to us a little bit about that first point. You grew up on the mission field. What did that look like? Well, both of my parents grew up in western Pennsylvania in um, rural farming communities. My dad didn't go to college. They met, and shortly after they were married, moved to the Philadelphia area, uh, where there was a lot more jobs. My dad worked as a mechanic and in the shipyards. So I am the fourth born Um, but to make a long story short, right around the time that I was born, God started working in my parents' hearts through a missionary speaker from South America. And right around the time that I was born, they surrendered to missions. And right after I was born, they started their missionary training. Um, they served with New Tribes Mission. And so there was multiple year training process in different locations. And so when they went to back in the day, they called it missionary boot camp. And part of that is you go up into the woods, you build a house out of tree limbs and twine and mud oven. And I was just a baby at that time. So I remember seeing pictures of this crib made out of tree limbs and twine, and, and uh, that, that was how, I mean, for me, I've just been in missions all my life. I was three years old when my folks moved to Papua New Guinea, uh, so PNG, that was my earliest memories. Our first furlough, I was in second grade, and I remember... Those we landed in Hawaii, stopped in Hawaii on the way back over, and in the Honolulu airport, there's this huge U.S. seal 
that you kind of walk over. And I remember my parents commenting about how great it was to be on U.S. soil again. And it was just like, okay, I knew there was something special about being an American, but I was experiencing it all. Snow, I was really excited about seeing snow because New Guinea's in the tropics. Uh, The stores. One time I remember my uncle taking me to a store saying, pick out whatever candy you want. And I was just so overwhelmed by all the candy, all the options, all the different kinds. So um, just had incredible memories of growing up as a missionary kid. I had Papua New Guinean friends that I hung out with. I had great MK friends. I went to an MK boarding school. Um, which for many today that carries all kinds of baggage with it, good and and bad. Uh, My early years, my parents were dorm parents and worked on staff on the MK school. My high school years, they were in more remote areas. Um, And so I was like a, a typical boarding student. But um, just incredible memories of being near the front lines of the gospel. My missionary aunts and uncles, just their testimonies, learning so much from them. So it, it was an incredible experience overall. Okay, so growing up on the mission field, what advice would you give to children today who are MKs? I, I would say MKs are going to go through... Um, a lot of ups and downs. Those that go to the field at a young age, typically they love it. The hard part is when they adjust back into American life, usually as teenagers, college students, and that whole young adult process. Depending on the field that they grew up on, the situation, there can just be um, a lot of adjustments. And so I try to encourage MKs, the opportunity God has given you is just amazing. And you got to remember that. And when you feel like, I don't fit anywhere, I'm not a real American, I'm not real Papua New Guinean or whatever country you're in, to remember that even in those difficult times, God has blessed you uh, with an incredible perspective to see things from, from different sides. And to just realize that truth, don't get discouraged. Usually, once you get through those early adulting years, you start to recognize the values more of being in MKs. So I describe it as a high, a low, and then it starts settling out as kind of a high again. Okay, so there's a popular book called Third Culture Kids. What does that title mean? What was the purpose of that book? You have your own children that you've seen become very interested in missions, which we'll talk about a little bit later. What are third culture kids and what is that book about and how does it help young people, children that grow up on the mission field? Yeah, third culture kids kind of took the term MKs and expanded it to not just missionary kids, but military kids, those uh, business people that serve overseas, so, so you're growing up. And the third culture is you're not your home culture. So for us, U.S., my wife will say that she's the only real American in our family. 
because I grew up overseas and our three daughters grew up overseas. So even in relating in the family, she's like, I don't get you guys sometimes. And we're like, we don't get you sometimes. So that's the where you're not full African, you're not full American, you're kind of somewhere in that middle. And the idea of being a third is you connect best with other third culture kids. It's kind of like, okay, other MKs, other TCKs, I connect better with them. When I went to college, I mean, it was tough, but I gravitated to other MKs and third culture kids. And one friend in particular, he was a year ahead of me, especially that first year, man, he, he got me through. So we kind of connect and understand better others. I think the book's purpose is just to help third culture kids understand what's going on and the things that they may be going through is normal, is typical. And, and so I, I think it's helpful in that way. I think it can be helpful to parents. So like missionaries or military that they didn't grow up overseas, they may have grown up in the U.S., but then their kids um, are going through different things and they don't quite understand that. I think it can be helpful um, to parents as well. So transitioning to suffering on the field, we often have a romantic view of missions, but for those who have been on the mission field, for any amount of time, will realize the amount of suffering that happens. And you personally have suffered in a number of ways. I'm thinking primarily about the loss of your mother. Could you walk us through that a little bit, some ways that you've suffered on the field, how you got through that suffering, and why it's worth it to serve Christ even in the midst of suffering on the mission field? Yeah. So growing up in PNG, you know, very poor. Uh, back then, it was very primitive. Uh, even in the more towns and urban areas, mostly villagers, um, you have illness, malaria, especially others. But most of that stuff growing up, I didn't think of it as suffering. It was just kind of normal. And being in a missionary community, we were so much better uh, than the Papua New Guineans. And so as a kid, you know, you realize the blessings that, that we had. And then for me, probably the biggest thing as a kid um, in the area of suffering was the loss of my mom. And um, my parents were simple um, you know, not a lot of education. They wouldn't be looked on as super missionaries. They were just servants. And they served most of their career in a support capacity. So serving in a manner to enable other missionaries to be on the front lines. And so my dad was really handy in fixing things. And so, you know, he... He just served in a serving capacity, even as a missionary. And um, especially back then, uh, there weren't support requirements as far as you need to have X number of monthly support to go. So it was pretty lean a lot of times. But 
as kids, we saw our parents' attitude, their love for God, their service. So then I was a senior in high school, um, February of my senior year, so kind of past halfway. And there was a doctor from the U.S. and his wife that had actually treated my younger brother uh, in Pennsylvania while we were on furlough. They had planned a vacation trip to Australia, and my folks invited them to come up and visit. They were not believers, um, good people, but not Christians that we know. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll come up and visit, which was really the, of all our churches, and they were the only ones that came and visited us on the field. So that was a surprise. So my parents arranged a trip to take them to the coast. So we were in the inland, uh, mountainous, highlands area of the country, and it's about a five to six hour drive to the coast. So one morning, the night before, they were at the MK school. So that morning, I'm on my way to school. I give my folks a big, uh, a quick hug goodbye. Typical teenager, not thinking too much about anything except myself, probably. And I go to school. And they were planning to be gone, I think, for like three or four days. That evening, I'm hanging out with my friends. Somebody comes up to me and says, Dave, your dad is at your dorm. He needs to see you. And that just threw me off guard. They're supposed to be gone for a few days. I'm walking to my dorm, and I notice they said, your dad. And I'm like, something is not right here. As soon as I walked in our dorm, I knew something was really wrong. My dorm dad told me, hey, your dad's in our bedroom. I go to their bedroom. As soon as I step in, it's my dad and my younger brother. My dad is just extremely distraught. He starts telling me about an accident that happened earlier that day. And instantly I started praying and begging God for the life of my mom. I'm like, it's okay if she's hurt, if she's in the hospital, just don't take her. So in an instant, I'm, I'm praying that. And immediately my faith is put to the test because I got my answer, but it was not what I wanted. My dad informed me that my mom had passed away instantly. There were four in the vehicle, my parents and the doctor and his wife. My dad, the doctor and his wife didn't have a scratch on them. And my mom was, was killed instantly. So that, that was a huge test of faith. Um, initially, it was hard for me to grieve because my dad uh, was very, very distraught. He would just sit in silence staring at his wedding ring. And so my older brother and sister, I had an older brother that had passed away um, due to illness back when my parents were going through the missionary training. So I had an older brother and sister that were in the States that made arrangements to come as quick as they could, but it took a few days. Uh, we didn't have the funeral until like a week or so after the accident. So it's just so much emotion. Until my brother and sister got there, I was just worried about my dad, that I was going to lose my dad. Because he just, I had never seen emotional distress um, like that. Um, to try to make a long story short, after the funeral, 
My older brother and sister returned to the States. My dad is requested by the police to return to the coastal town to fill out police reports. The problem that we later found out was there was another vehicle that had swerved. Think of just a two-lane road. It was the main highway in the country, but it's just two lanes. So opposing traffic um, swerves over. The guy that caused it was a government official. Because of corruption, my father was arrested and falsely accused. He had to stand trial. So not only does he lose his wife, but now he's actually standing trial for the apparent murder of your mother, his wife. Yeah. The official charge was manslaughter, but that, that's how it felt. So, I mean, again, as 17-year-old, it's just like piling on. And so I think it was the second hearing I attended, and I'm watching my dad on trial, just rehashing everything. The police were so corrupt, just brought absurd accusations, and this bitterness just starts swelling up in me. Because I, I knew my parents' sacrifice, and I'm like, God, if, if this is what it is to serve you, I never want to come to this place again. I'm graduating in a few months. I never want to be here. And I'm not even sure about our relationship. So that was kind of where I was at. Thankfully, about a month after that, the case was thrown out of court. So the judge, the magistrate, I, I don't know if he was a believer, but at least he had integrity. He saw the accusations were just ridiculous, and he just threw the case out of court, and my dad was set free. That brought huge relief, but I'm still (laughs) in a lot of turmoil. So the turning point was a conversation I had with my dad where I assumed he and my younger brother were moving back to the States. So after graduation, we're all going back, and... Papua New Guinea is forever behind us. And immediately in that conversation, with all the distraught my dad had gone through, he calmly explains to me that he's going to stay. And the reason that he's going to stay is the call in his life hadn't changed. And he was confident of that. And my dad was, again, a very simple man. But when I describe him to others, he's a man of faith. And if he believed this is what God wanted him to do, he just did it, even as, as hard as it was. And that's how, why, you know, we went to the field to begin with. And so I had heard and studied and learned the Bible my entire life, but he was showing me what it meant to walk by faith in the darkest time. and. It it was pretty quick. Before I got on the plane, he said, you're going to go back to go to college. We're going to stay. And thankfully, before I got on the plane, God had worked in my heart. And I'm like, if my dad can trust you, he's gone through much more than I have, then Lord, I'm going to trust you. And so I, I got on that plane with a heart willing to return if, if that was the Lord's leading. And, and I remember thinking through that. 
there was later a mission team from Australia that came up to New Guinea, and my dad met a lady uh, who was in her mid to late 30s, never been married. They started writing letters back and forth, and uh, a romantic bond developed there. So then my dad and younger brother moved to Australia so that they could date, and then they got married, and then they went back to Papua New Guinea as missionaries. So to say that my dad had an impact on my life is, is a huge understatement. So of all the sermons you've heard, of all the books you've read on missions, ultimately, at, at least at that moment, what it was that strengthened your faith was seeing the example and model, the kind of Hebrews 11 example that we look at, that great cloud of witnesses. It was your father's example that kept you going. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 have been my life verses, and I feel like I'm still learning those truths. But my senior year, and what was interesting, I believe I trusted in Christ at a young age of five. I wasn't baptized until the year before that. So my junior high, early high school years, I was just really wishy-washy. But my junior year, I dedicated my life to the Lord. I was baptized. I was serious about reading and studying the Bible. I got involved with some other MK friends, teaching in a village regularly on Sundays. I mean, that, that was the key decision of where me and other friends were like, we want to live for God, and we want to take our relationship seriously. So a lot of good growth, and then bam, just this huge, tragic test of faith. And it was my dad's example that really got me through that. Okay, so this leads us to the third item, which was you grew up on the mission field, then you suffered on the mission field. You even used the word bitterness. There was at least that moment where you were fighting. You, could, you really could have gone either way at this moment. You see your father's example, and you go off to college, and then somewhere along the line, you decide to actually go back to the country where you grew up. Talk to us a little bit about that. So all during my college years, um, I was, wasn't a missions major. I was actually a business and computer major because I could see computers were being used. And I didn't know exactly in what capacity, but every missions conference, you know, I would go forward, I would surrender. I was actually the freshman class chaplain. Um, probably most students would have thought thought that I was a missions or, or Bible major because being involved in mission prayer band and, and so many other things. But I was fully surrendered. I just didn't know, God, is this your calling and leading? I, I didn't want to just assume it. Um, I, I wanted to know that. But it was something that I pursued. In dating relationships, I was like, yeah, this is my major, but I'm really interested in missions. I grew up in Papua New Guinea. And if God calls me back there, this is what I'm doing. So as I was dating girls, and there were a couple relationships where it started to get more serious. And we had more frank discussions. And you could just kind of sense that that was a bit of a deal breaker. So after college, uh, to make a long story short, 
uh, a year after college, God moved me to, to Greenville, South Carolina for a job with a software company. I didn't know many people here. Uh, one guy that I had met up in Pennsylvania, he went to Morningside Baptist Church. I started going to Morningside, and that's where I met my wife. And the first time I met her, she had just come back from Europe on a mission trip, and she had a real interest in missions. So a year after we were married, we did a survey trip, and the survey trip had multiple purposes. My parents, my dad, and my stepmom did not meet my wife, Sean, until that trip. So they hadn't met my wife until a year after we were married. So we go on that trip so my parents can meet my wife. And my brother and his wife were over, already over serving as missionaries. And then we were just praying uh, the whole time leading up to it for God to lead. And while we were there, we learned about a people group in a region called the Simbai, Kalam language group. Very, very remote. The only way in and out is in a bush airplane. And we heard how the gospel went in there without missionaries. And it's, it's a fascinating but long story. And how they had sent five of their new believers to the Bible college where my brother worked. And so that's how he and other missionaries became aware of what happened there. And one of the old couple's veteran missionaries at the Bible college was flying in on weekends with MAF to work with these new believers. And they told us when their youngest graduates from high school, goes to the States to go to college, they want to move in there and they were looking for partners. So after our time in New Guinea, we spent some time in Australia meeting my stepmother's family. And then we have the long flight over. And on that flight was really the first time that Sean and I had to talk. And we were both like, God's calling us to Simbai. I mean, it was just as clear as concrete. So what was really neat was when we got back, as soon as I could, I made an appointment to meet with our pastor. I had maps. I had pictures. And I was like, this is where God's calling us. So it was until that point. We were kind of, in a sense, headed towards P&G, but my dad served with one board, my brother was with another board, and our church had just started uh, another board that I serve as the director now. So I was like, I don't know where we're going to go, I don't know what capacity, but through that whole story of learning about the Simbai people, the Kalam language group, we were, we were set, we knew that's where God wanted us. So church planting there, just very briefly overview, what was the nature of your ministry? And by the time you left, what had happened? So we did tribal church planting, but I was never the pastor of a church, which to many doesn't make any sense at all. And part of our philosophy of ministry, everything I'd seen as an MK I'm thinking through all of this, I'm reading, and I'm thinking, how, what is the best role for us to fit? So even during our visit and survey trip, I remember telling my brother, we want to be in Bush, but we want to be working through nationals and national leadership. So in between 
the Holy Spirit working in the gospel first going in, some of these students coming to the Bible college. By the time we do deputation, I did a, a master's degree during deputation. By the time we get there, there were eight groups of believers. I'll hesitate to use the term church because there were some issues there, but we'll call them church fellowships. So step one was working with those eight, and we mapped out a plan to help them become adult biblical churches. And that's how we described it, is you're babies now, but you need to become adults. Here's the biblical path and framework to becoming adult churches with the whole goal of reproducing and explaining from the very beginning, this is the whole purpose is yes, the gospel redeems us. We become children of God. We have the promise of heaven, but this is why we're on this earth. And this is how we serve for the glory of God. So helping those eight, and I would typically work with three churches at a time because I didn't want any one church used to me or my partner did a similar thing of where we were their missionary or we were their pastor. Once, and it was usually about a two-year process, that we got a fellowship to a graduated level, and then they would reproduce. So we were there for 10 years because of some health issues that I had. But during those 10 years, we saw eight church fellowships grow to a total of 20 churches and fellowships. Thank you for listening to part one of two of this episode of Missionary Minds. To listen to part two, join us next Missions Monday.